Hey, listener, welcome to What Next Impeachment Edition. Quick heads up, we curse a little tiny bit. Last week in impeachment. The Democrats charged ahead. The position of the House as it stands now is just we're going to charge ahead full steam. They want to do things as soon as possible by the end of the year. But this week, they faced the full tilt Republican response. It's through those hidden closed doors over there. Adam Schiff is trying to impeach a president of the United States behind closed doors. It's been in there for 10 hours. I can assure you there was no quid pro quo. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. I have got Dolly Lithwick and Jim Newell right back in the studio with me. We're going to tell you why Ambassador William Taylor's testimony seemed to touch off so much drama and why a bunch of Republicans broke into their own secure meeting room. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, happy uh, impeachment, everybody. <laughs> We're back again. <sighs> yeah. Okay, so everything that happened this week, when I looked at it, it seemed to revolve around and arise from the testimony of one guy, U.S. Ambassador William Taylor. Some people call him Bill. Do you guys think we can call him Bill? What what should we call him? I call him Charge Charge Affairs Bill. Oh, that's, that's very fun. So, uh, that's so French. Yeah. Did I, how do you like my accent? That was good. It's really, it was good. It was good. Um, okay, so his opening statement, which is basically all we have to go on, but it, it's 15 pages long, so it's not nothing. It read like a detective's notebook. It was the piece-by-piece story of how Bill Taylor, grizzled public servant, takes this job as ambassador to the Ukraine or charged affairs even though he worries, you know, this isn't going to be a great fit. And then he slowly realizes, from his perspective at least, how bad things are. And he sets himself up as like a real defender of Ukraine. He has this very romantic kind of moment where he goes to a bridge and he can see Russian forces over on the other side. And he realizes aid isn't coming through to Ukraine. And it's sort of this this story of how he pieces together what's happening. So, I'm wondering for each of you, what part of this testimony stood out? I guess I'll start with you, Dahlia. I I, I mean, I think it's that. Here's a guy who has all the doubts, and he's telling us all the doubts, uh, and he's uh, frustrated about what happened to the, you know, his predecessor, and and worried. Uh, Marie Ivanovich. Yeah, he's, you know, he knows that that was inappropriate. He wants to be loyal to her. For me, it really crystallizes this question that we've been asking, you know, for almost for three years, which is how. As a patriot, do you serve something you think is fundamentally not patriotic? And all the ways in which he still lets himself get dragged back in, even with grievous doubts, because he believes 
that he can serve. And he thinks that what he can serve, ironically, is not Donald Trump's weird grifting agenda. He thinks he can serve the country. And I just think, for me, it's seeing spoken out loud, the kind of inner monologue I've been wondering about Jim Mattis, I've been wondering about John Kelly, you know, Don McGahn, all these people who have convinced themselves to be in it, but out of it, but working, but but checking. This is that in the first person? Yeah, it's like he's like, I arrived in Ukraine with my signed letter from the president in one hand and my commitment to Ukraine yeah, from yeah. Mike Pompeo in the other hand framed and I put it up. Um, Jim, what stood out to you? His use of the word weird when he describes how things were were different than what he expected because you have this very straight laced guy talk, you know, speaking this in this very diplomatic language. And then he says, but there was this very weird other thing going on. And he, the way he he spelled out the difference between the regular official channels, which he said, you know, he was supposedly the, the nexus of all of that. And then the unorthodox channel, which is basically Rudy Giuliani running around Ukraine doing God knows what. It's almost like two different eras of government almost clashing here. You have sort of the, the staid diplomat, foreign service, career guy coming in to, you know, the quote unquote drug deal and trying to <laughs> trace everything. And in his testimony, he lays out these series of phone calls and chats. It feels like it's very clear he was taking notes <laughs> the whole time and really doing his duty. He talks about, you know, I filed a report that was about this phone call, you know, for the record. He talks about like being on Skype calls and hearing a voice, not knowing who it is, saying something like, well, you know, that Ukraine money, it's on hold by my boss. You know, and he's like, who's that? You know, I don't know who that is. And he doesn't. He doesn't. But he just sort of writes it down like here's uh, I guess this money's on hold. I don't know why. And sort of gradually begins to piece things together through conversations with the ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland and other people. And to me, it really all sets up this clash between him and Gordon Sondland, who testified last week. And I'm wondering, Dahlia, you're a lawyer. This disagreement I guess this is pretty typical when you're putting together a legal argument. You call people in and they have different memories and you have to figure out who's is correct. Uh, well, in this case, I'm not sure it's so much different memories, but different exposure. I think that Sondland is trying very, very hard not to implicate himself. And so, you know, when Sondland is asked why all the like, let's take this offline, I'll call you, you know, some of that stuff. Uh, and, and he and, you know, he and Taylor are breaking about this quid pro quo question and who knew about the quid pro quo stuff. It seems to me that often where there is a, a disjunction between their, it's not their memories, it's Sondland trying to figure out how to not perjure himself, not lie openly, but to make sure that he's not in it deeper than he is in it. And I think that's that's where they seem to split. Yeah. And Taylor, there was this one part of his testimony that stood out where he talks about Gordon Sondland characterizing Trump's behavior and saying, he's a businessman. Look, he's a businessman. This is what you do when someone owes you something. You've got to settle up before I'll cut you a check. And <laughs> you can if someone if someone wants something, you have to get something in return. It's like a sort of like a like a quid. What is it? Quid pro quo. Yeah. Right. Jim, can you describe the reaction on the Hill after this opening statement was released? 
I mean, Democrats, it was, it was pretty fun. I mean, they were running around pretty much covering their mouths, being like, oh, shit, you know. I mean, they were they said there were gasps and sighs when it was read in the committee room. OK, who um, sighs, though? <laughs> I mean, it was very ga- Victorian. Yes, it was. <laughs> Maybe that was a bit of an exaggeration. I don't know. I would like to hear how many gasps and, and noises or, you know, were actually going on in there. Democrats really felt that this was, you know, someone called it a sea change. They felt that this was the most vivid description they've had yet of the quid pro quo that launched this whole impeachment inquiry. But yeah, then it came out and they were pretty much right. And I, and you saw from there uh, House Republicans sort of go in the other direction and just pretty much abandon talking about substance altogether. So Wednesday morning after Bill Taylor's testimony, you have Republicans all of a sudden trying to figure out how are we going to defend the president against this? And there are some reports they actually went to the White House to meet with him, right? Yeah. There was a lot of House Freedom Caucus, the the far-right bloc. A lot of them went to the White House. And I think this is when Trump was really like, everyone needs to kick it up a notch a little bit here in, in my defense. I mean, they did kick it up a notch. All of a sudden, yeah. <laughs> they showed up making speeches and sounding quite incensed. Yeah. So it was about 30 House Republicans, most of them Freedom Caucus members. But there was Steve Scalise, who's the number two Republican, and their ringleader in this was uh, Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, who's known to be over-the-top Trump loyalist in a body where there are many over-the-top Trump loyalists. Um, so he is leading them in, and they say, we there's been this secretive process. Adam Schiff is running this witch hunt, this sham impeachment behind closed doors. We want to know what's going on. And it's only reasonable that we would have questions. Because None of so us are allowed to get in there. None of us can get appointments to go in there. So we're just going to go in and see what's going on and break this all up. We're going to go and see if we can get inside. So let's, uh, let's see if we can get in. So then, you know, they, they don't actually sprint in, you know, but they, they walk past security and they go in there. And uh, from what I understand, when I asked people afterwards what happened, you know, Adam Schiff kind of rolled his eyes and then left. And then there was a lot of uh, screaming between the members who were in there and some of those who had bursted in. Um, as Mo Brooks, who's a very conservative member from Alabama, described it to me, he said there were very harsh words between the Republican congressman and the socialist congressman. <laughs> then they just sort of stayed in there doing what exactly? I don't really know. I kept trying to ask people for over the next several hours because it was a sit-in, you know, like, what, what are people actually doing in there? And they wouldn't really Tell me. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like a gotcha question. I was just are, like, are they playing cards? You know, like what what's going on? And the place they'd walked into, it was a secure facility. It's called a skiff. Yes. It's where all of these hearings are being held and you can't bring your cell phone inside. It's basically built to contain information. Can you talk to me a little bit about the skiff and how it usually works? Whenever there's any sort of classified information that Members of Congress or senators are privy to but can't exactly take with them. They go to the skiff where there's no electronics around. It's very secure. For example, last year during the uh, the whole Kavanaugh hearings and, and that whole episode, um, after the FBI report, the background check was done on Kavanaugh the week before he passed. That's where all the senators would go uh, to read it. And they couldn't take any photos of it or they couldn't describe what was going on anyway. So, yeah, it's pretty much their, their setting for, for classified information or secret information. There were reports that some of the Republicans who sort of busted into this meeting, they wanted to be arrested. 
that doesn't surprise me at all. And I think that's why Democrats, you know, we asked, why didn't you just have the sergeant arms come in with a couple deputies and just start arresting people? And it would, I think Republicans would love that more than anything if they showed, you know, evil Adam Schiff having members of Congress who dare challenge the truth be arrested. So I think they were, even though I think they would have been within their rights to have the sergeant at arms remove people from there because it's a clear violation of House rules and potentially national security law, I think they didn't want to give Republicans that image. So I want to break down the arguments that the Republicans have been making against this inquiry because I think it's kind of illuminating to see how they're shifting and what's changing. The main argument that Republicans are making is that the process right now is not fair. You saw Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham introducing this resolution to basically say the process is unfair. And it feels like their strongest argument because like emotionally it it feels right. We've talked about about this before, how, you know, Americans who have watched a lot of SVU might see what's going on and say, well, why can't the president call other kinds of witnesses? Why can't there be defense lawyers there? The thing that I think also works about this argument is that the Democrats could be dragging this out a little bit to just control the message where, you know, you can see it in the polls. The longer they keep this drip, drip, drip of information that they are tightly controlling going, the better it seems to be working out for them. I wonder, Jim, do you think I'm being too cynical by thinking of it that way? You know, the only really kernel of, of understanding I, I have with the Republicans over their process complaints is that, you know, they think it's a little unfair that the only things that end up getting leaks are these extraordinarily damning parts. And maybe in the you know hours and hours of testimony afterwards, when there's some cross-examination, there's maybe uh, something, some sort of caveat, you know, to what's going on. So I understand maybe their frustration with that. But in general, I think it's it's pretty ludicrous to say that you can't do closed door depositions at the outset of an investigation. When you're the charging body, you're not the body holding the trial. I mean, they did this with, you know, previous impeachment, they had closed door depositions, they had months of them in, in Watergate, closed door hearings. And then, uh, you know, in the Benghazi investigation, in, in when House Republicans were in charge of the House, they had closed-door depositions forever. I mean, it's only a problem if Democrats went straight from closed-door depositions straight to articles of impeachment on the floor. I mean, at some point, there is going to need to be public hearings and a release of the available testimony and evidence. But I think that's going to happen. It's really crazy to me, this whole idea that you can't do closed-door depositions, in which Republicans on the relevant committees are allowed, by the way. Right. And assumably, if there was some kind of exculpatory evidence, the Republicans on those committees would be bringing that out, right, you know, right. the same way the Democrats are releasing the statements. Right. I, I agree. So it's just very strange to hear them use all these arguments that, you know, the president's lawyers are there. There aren't any witnesses. There's no cross-examination. This is an illegitimate trial when it's not a trial at all at this point. You know, I mean, this is the collection of evidence. I think this is of a piece with a years-long Trump administration effort to reframe everything as a criminal process, even when it's not. First of all, they framed the entire uh, question about whether t- Trump is impeachable as this was not a crime. But of course, you don't need to have committed uh, 
bribe a crime under any statute to be impeachable. And what Jim says is right. We've said over and over again, this is like a grand jury. You know, this is not your time to depose witnesses. This is not your time to cross-examine claims made against you. We all know that. The burden on Pelosi is to keep making that point. The impeachment process is really old. It's like an ancient thing that we almost never do. And I read this one analysis this week that basically laid out the case that every impeachment is a reinvention and every time you're rewriting the rules. Just because the people in charge like don't have a lot of practice, there's not a lot of muscle memory in terms of how you do it. Um, it made me worried because I feel like we're doing a lot of process fighting and it feels like there's a lot of room for that fight just because there's no one who's articulated how this is supposed to work and we keep changing it. Frank Bowman has this great book that I've interviewed him about a couple of times about the impeachment process. One of the things he says that I think is so interesting is that when the framers were talking about building the impeachment block of this, it was something they all knew about because in you know England it had been happening all the time. People were impeached all the time. The framers knew exactly. They had a common, like you say, muscle memory. Everybody knew what it looked like. People in England, you know, you could be stripped of your title, stripped of your lands. You know, you could land up in jail. The framers were so aware of what the costs and benefits of an impeachment were, they actually took out all the personal, you know, you can no longer lose your lands. You can no longer. They wanted it actually weirdly to be easier uh, when they constructed this. And so they took away the life and death consequences. And in their view, by doing that, Congress wouldn't be afraid of it. They would be willing to deploy it because nobody was going to die or go to jail. And the paradox is both that they were all familiar with the language of high crimes and misdemeanors. They knew what abuse of power meant. They knew all this stuff. It was a part of their the warp and woof of how they thought of governance. And we have been so afraid of it. And I think that the framers would look at what we're doing now, this conversation now, and think the problem isn't that you used it too rarely, too often, uh, and too... uh, Uh, indulgently, but you used it so rarely that you've mystified it and that you don't understand that in England, they were impeaching people left and right for far lesser things. And so I think that it's not just a question of it's rare and we invent it as we go along, but we have stripped what was really obvious and clear to the framers when they were building this machinery of anything that is obvious and clear. They wanted it to be robust and well used uh, in the cases of this kind of abuse of power. The same way that <laughs> some folks thought we should have a revolution every few years. Exactly. Like this was really in, in, the, in the water at the time. They didn't want it to not be used. Dahlia Jim, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts in Washington for Slate. Jim Newell covers Congress. Together, we cover all the bases. This has been your Impeachment News Roundup and a special afternoon edition of What Next? I hope you checked out Lizzie O'Leary in the morning. We are trying this for a few more weeks. Tell us what you think of it. I'm on Twitter at Mary's Desk. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Danielle Hewitt, and Mara Silvers. Thanks for listening. I'm Mary Harris. I'll talk to you next week.